Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm honored to say that this is our first anniversary. And as such, we're doing a special episode today. It's a strange thing to think about how this time last year I had launched my first episode, Reaching the Community with DeAndre Carroll, and was nervously waiting to see what the response would be. Up until that point, I had been wanting to do the show for a number of years, as far back as 2017, but I never went through with it because I didn't see how such a thing would be feasible. I didn't even know if anyone out there would be interested in hearing about these stories from the dance world, since we dancers aren't usually valued or prized for our thoughts. When the pandemic began and we were all entering quarantine, I figured, what the hell? I'll do a few episodes and see what happens. At worst, I get it out of my system and a few people stuck indoors will have one more thing to keep their minds off of what was, at the time, a terrifying ordeal. I had no way of knowing how this show was going to grow. There was no way I could predict how making this show and telling these stories would make me a better dancer and a better person. The guests who have come on to share their wisdom and experiences have compelled me to look at the world in a whole new way. And I hope, from the bottom of my heart, they've done the same for you. It has been an honor to spend this first year with all of you. Thank you so much for helping us build something truly amazing. As the next chapter begins, let me invite you to sit back, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy the show. I'm Rob Celtic, and this is Drinking and Dance at the End of the World. Welcome to a very special episode of Drinking and Dance at the End of the World. As of this week, our show has been out in the world for an entire year, exploring the connections between the modern and vintage street dance communities, diving deep into the stories of dancers that represent different aspects of this Black cultural creation, exploring what we believe and what we think we know about dance, and finding ways to grow and connect in a year that was unlike any other in living memory. Now, there's an idea in learning and growth of any kind that in order to reach the next level, it is important to go back to the beginning. So in that sense, I wanted to return and check back in with our first guest, Denver's own OG and community leader, DeAndre Carroll, on what we've learned since recording episode one, Reaching the Community, exactly a year ago. DeAndre, welcome back, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. Oh, dude, thank you for coming back on. Thank you again for ad- agreeing to be the first guest in this uh, in this experiment. And um, yeah, it's just it's just amazing to to think that it's been one year since we did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The time has flown by. <laughs> um, 
yeah, it was just a little over a year ago that the whole COVID lockdown started. So I think there have been some pretty transformative things by way of what's happening with dance in the community since then. So just just to be able to check in from that perspective of just kind of a year under you know different conditions in this experiment that's COVID is is actually I think pretty timely and amazing. Oh my God, it's a year uh, or a decade. I can't really tell. Right, right. It feels like both. Yeah, in my body, it feels like both too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are you drinking today? I am drinking Celestial Seasonings Bengal Spice Tea with a little bit of honey. Solid. And I have myself, in keeping with your vibe, I have the Guayaki Yerba Mate, like my second or third steep. And after five steeps, that's when you start going into trance mode, so... Oh boy. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Get too much of that natural Adderall. You start walking around the house, like really inspecting the art. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So in that sense, we raise our glasses uh, to the sky. Cheers to your health. Cheers. Mm. So um, first and foremost, a question that I have learned in this year long experiment, um, a question I've learned to ask, start asking people because I used to end all like a lot of my interviews with asking what's one question you've always wanted to be asked. I did this because, you know, it was sort of a a cheater thing. Like, what did I miss? Like, what do you got something inside that like, have we scraped the bottom of the pot, you know? And more than a few times, the answer to that question that they've always wanted to be asked was simply how are you? And not in a like flighty little, you know, customary, oh, bah, 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 you know, oh, I'm good. You good. Yeah. Okay. A really like, take a second. How are you doing mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, um, especially considering this year we've all been through? How are you doing, man? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I think look, there's a, a lot tied together in that answer. Uh, physically, I'm doing okay, as well as can be expected. I've found resources and ways to stay active during the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think emotionally, uh, a lot of what I'm going through emotionally is tied to that. Um, you know, just I'm I'm at an age where if you if you if you don't take care of yourself, if you're not diligent about taking care of yourself, your body can really start to sort of shut down on you in the way that I think is stereotypical of aging. Yeah. Um, you know, so I have to, I have to really stay on top of that. Uh, and emotionally, there's a lot that that's typically tied to that. Uh, you know, I, I've really discovered this year that I am I am a true to the bone introvert, which means that I can I can stay distanced from people for a long period of time as long as I have my resources. You know, like an internet connection and my library of books. Uh, you know, I have over I have I have a library of over 600 personal books. Ooh. Uh, and, yeah. And so like, I'm still actually catching up. That's the closest thing that I have to a vice. I'm a nearly compulsive book buyer. Um, you know, and, and it, it's always been funny in my relationships, um, that, you know, when I'm dating someone, they're always amazed at how I know where something is <laughs> in a book, given all of the books that I yeah. have. And it's just like, Oh yeah, that's, that's in this book, in this chapter. And they're just like, how do you do that? And, Truthfully, I, I don't know, but it, it, I think it's one of those things tied to being an introvert. I can, the, my entire world doesn't have to really go much further than my office. Well, years of practice, be, I'd, I'd say, is how you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That being said, there are even limits to that. Um, I, I do sometimes realize I, I want to and need to get out more. And even if I'm, I'm really kind of in my own company, 
I I do want to be in the middle of of the dynamic of living, um, and I have limited amounts of time where I can do either one. Uh, you know, with with introverts, they say the true test of an introvert or the true, true indication of an introvert is how you rejuvenate, how you re-energize, yeah. uh, and and I do that by being alone. Um, but with that being said, there's so much going on in the world, and because of the nature of, of the type of person I am, the books aren't the only way for me to explore. You explore also by being out in the world. And so to me, it's almost like being cut off from, from a different type of library. And I, and I miss that, you know, even if, even if my interactions aren't always with people, you know, one-on-one, uh, I do miss being out in, in that, that dynamic library. That's the entire world. So I, I'm definitely feeling that. Um, I think on, a, on, a more subtle level, uh, I do start to feel some of the effects of being stationary for a long time. You, um, I got out yesterday and I drove to Boulder, uh-huh. uh, just kind of checked out a couple things, went to one of my favorite restaurants out there. It's a noodle shop uh, on Pearl Street and uh, got the weekly special, which is something I used to do regularly when I would go into work in Boulder. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of walked around and just being out in the world, uh, you know, just kind of like treading my own path through it. It's like navigating people, going to the bookstore, stuff like that. It, it, it just really rejuvenated me. Uh, it's something that I haven't been able to do as much in this past year. I even swung by the block just to see what was going on there, uh, just to be around, you know, dancers in a class that was going on. And uh, I, I ran ashore <laughs> of, uh, of my desire to be out in the world mixed with my anxiety around about like around being around people during this whole pandemic, yeah. you know, and slight amounts of agoraphobia. I found myself walking into the studio and upon encountering the, the, the humidity from a dance class, mm-hmm. realizing that, that um, COVID can hang in the air for a long period of time in places that were humid. I turned around and walked right back out. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's for me, I found it really difficult to balance. Well, I mean, initially like this idea of like uh like my place in this whole uh, situation, my responsibility as a human being in terms of making sure I do not get this virus, not necessarily for like my own survival, but to ensure that I'm not spreading it to someone else. Right. And right. it, it was actually this, it was one of the things that uh, my former partner and I, one of the last things we ever fought about was uh, something this to this effect. And uh, without going into detail, it was just this idea of like balancing your social responsibility um, in the time of, pa- of a pandemic with your necessity to do things for your mental health to ensure that like you don't you know, cause some irreparable damage by like entombing yourself as well. Sure. Um, right. Right. You know, and, and, and I feel like both sides have very much been vindicated over this last year. And this is the thing when I mean, like doing things necessary to like keep your mental health in place in terms of like uh, finding safe ways of going out. I'm not talking about those idiots that are saying like, Oh, masks are living in fear and this and that, like, no mask up, stay sick, at least six feet away from people, wash hands, like do all those other things. But like, for me personally, like reading like the literature that's been coming out lately about like the long-term effects that the pandemic is having on our mental health, 
you know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite scary. <laughs> yeah. This yeah, mass, this is. mass response to trauma. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I made a post that was kind of a joke about that last year, mm. uh, about how at the end of this, you know, years on down the line, people would actually be discovering things that were long-term or side effects from having had the virus, even though they were asymptomatic, yeah. uh, that, that would have been uh, remediated had they just basically kept social distancing in place and kept wearing their masks. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a science fiction head. And so <laughs> I, 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 I get into stuff like that and think about those things. And I think, you know, just these brilliant pieces of science fiction where they talk about long-term effects you know, and how the dynamics of different things work. Uh, and then just kind of later on seeing them talking about just kind of the long haul, uh, the long haul conditions that can be associated with COVID. It's just like, I joked about this, but I wasn't really joking about it. I think I, I put it in a way that people were just kind of like, Oh, that's, that's funny. And like, wait a minute, let's think about that. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be very heavy, heavy handed with it, but it's just kind of like, these are things to consider. You know, they're, they're very much things to consider there. There's a lot that you said in the introduction, and just with some of that stuff that that just kind of buzzes in my mind that's really kind of timely with the things that are that are going on like when you talk about like this balance between you know your personal health and then your social responsibility mm. I, I think it has really been exposed in our society this weakness that we have as human beings in our scope of perception and understanding yeah that we we inherently don't really understand things on a large scale. We really sort of understand them in a very subjective and limited way, and it becomes very easy to become siloed in our subjective and limited understanding, Uh, especially when we don't try to seek understanding about how our actions uh, affect one another and how our collective actions affect each other at scale. The perfect analogy for this is the traffic jam. Uh, you have people basically kind of isolated and insulated in their cars, moving on down the highway, and don't really realize how certain things that they do while they're driving contribute to this this massive collective effect that results in the traffic jam. Like the shockwave you traffic know? jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The shot. Yeah, you know, it's like a person puts on their brakes quickly, and then the that that effect is amplified for every car behind them that also has to put on the brakes. Uh, and then you end up having this traffic jam. And just like the, the way that we think about it is that traffic should always move fast, mm. you know, because if you have everybody going, you know, the same speed, um, you know, it, it should be just kind of like this complete frictionless fluid um, dynamic of cars moving down the highway. Mm-hmm. But you have to factor into that our reaction times, whether or not a person is paying attention, uh, whether or not their car is actually in good repair, uh, the weather. Uh, the structure of the road, like the shape of the road. Are you going into a curve? Are you into a straightaway? How far can you see off in the distance? How wide is the road? All kinds of other things like yeah. that. And so so putting all those things together with our very limited, this kind of specious understanding where we think something is true, but that's not really how it is. It appears to us that it's true, but you step back and that's not how it is. You start seeing that sort of thing kind of come out in the traffic jam, and you see that come out in the way that people have been interacting with each other this past year. When we're all of this together, you can't just have a few people be responsible. 
Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's our difficulty as a society that we face that we we can't extricate ourselves from people who just don't who don't think like us and don't behave like us. Like all of our behaviors are this tremendous network that has effects on everyone. And then when you have people that just don't comply, we're still all in jeopardy. Yeah, absolutely. And it was this. Um, it was really interesting to watch, too, because you'd get like these it, I guess it, it really comes down to also like one's natural predisposition towards risk and what we consider to be risky behavior or our comfort levels with like not having complete control of a situation. Uh-huh. So like, for example, like the person I, I got in a fight with, like was uh, very um, critical of people not taking the pandemic seriously, which rightfully so like, Right. Um, but like the level to which they, you know, decided was the, their appropriate response. I can't judge. But at the same time, they also didn't see how they subjectively were like violating their own. Um, there were there were certain situations where they were like, oh, but that's fine. You know, I, I can go do this <sighs> and it's fine. But all these other people like they're not taking it seriously. I'm still doing this thing, right. which you right. know, I'll bend over backwards to justify. But like it was, it was, it reminded me of like Sigmund Freud. Um, it, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, right? You yep. know. Uh-huh. Uh, and for those who don't, uh, very quick, uh, for those who don't get that reference, uh, he, he very quickly it was this thing about uh, oral fixation, uh, people um, eating a banana or you know putting cylindrical things into their mouths that had some sort of connection to like uh, penises. And then somebody pointed out that Freud himself loved cigars. And instead of like buying into it, he just looked at it. He's like, well, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. It speaks to our, it speaks to our, our tendency sometimes to overanalyze. Um, I was actually listening to an episode of hidden brain yesterday and they were actually talking about the, the impulse to explain things. And they talk about how uh, people who come up with these deep and elaborate conspiracy (laughs) theories that, that conspiracy theory development is really, a response to two things a person not feeling in control of their life and then our tendency to explain things and over explain mm-hmm. them uh and there was an experiment that was actually referenced in the paper that was i, I think in one of the papers that was a source uh for the episode that said that people who felt out of control have a tendency to find more patterns and random information mm. You know, so so people would tend to find more patterns and say like television static, Um, you know, and so you you have this situation where where like feeling out of control, we we typically tend to fall back on a bunch of compensatory behaviors. Mixing that in with the thing that I previously said is that not only are we very subjective, we're very poor systems thinkers. So we typically tend to analyze our situation by a bunch of individual things instead of actually seeing behaviors connected. And so those are two kind of like opposite tensions. You like you you try to overexplain things and create this kind of narrative, like this elaborate pattern-based narrative. But then on the other side, you know, you have people thinking about like if I do this one thing, everything is going to be okay. And it's, it's almost this heuristic. They don't, they don't think about it in terms of like all the connected behaviors or understanding specifically how all of this works together. They pick out the specific behaviors that they will do that, that make them feel in control and makes them mm. feel safe. 
not realizing that the things that they're basically creating exceptions for are also things that could be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, like, I'm not saying the way I went about things was correct. Like there are definitely over the last year times where like I took chances in terms of seeing friends. Um, and this is again, not something like I advocate for anyone else to do. And I always like, you know, I always did my best to adhere to as, as many safety guidelines as I could, you know, like I was one of the only people at my job site to like consistently wear masks, like double masks, face shield, gloves everybody looked at me like I, you know because this was blue collar work this was a trade job so sure they all thought i was a dumbass and i'm like you motherfuckers but um but right. you know it was one of those like for me personally it was like i will still go out and do certain things uh in a very different changed altered way because i know my own mental health and i know what i can and can't handle and i know sure. that sure if I like, cause I have had, I have friends who have over the course of this year developed such fucking anxiety and, and, um, really, uh, debilitating, uh, mental health effects from long-term quarantine, uh, that it is like altered the, the course of their lives. And for me, I was yeah. like, okay, Ugh. I don't want that. I'm not going to be one of these idiots who treats the pandemic like it doesn't exist, but I also can't. I know myself that I can't do this either. So it was trying to find, navigate right. a balance. You, you, yeah, you have to find that balance. And I think that there is a balance that can be struck legitimately within the realm mm. of safety. Uh, and I think that that can be done by, by investing in understanding. So we've had kind of a weird situation in our house. You know, it's just like, um, you know, my girlfriend yeah. lives with me and her daughter has been with us for a good portion of the pandemic. And we basically had to go into isolation a few weeks ago because her daughter actually ended up Oof. contracting COVID. Uh, and it was over the Valentine's mm -hmm. Day weekend. So we had basically been exposed to her the entire time, you know, up until the day that she actually tested wow. positive. Um, so, you know, she's young, yeah. she's 20 years old. And it's one of those things where, you know, just neither her mother or I want her to be missing out on her life or feel like, you know, she's so isolated that it, that it starts producing anxiety or depression. And so we really had to try to come up with some guidelines, you know, for her being able to, to yeah. see her friends. Uh, and she's had a couple of opportunities and she's gotten together with friends over the course of time. And it's one of those things where, you know, we started with a, a certain series of guidelines, but because the guidelines weren't followed, not out of belligerence or out of rebellion or anything like that, because there wasn't the same level of understanding across all three of us about how this uh -huh. pandemic works, you know, about, about how it works, that, you know, certain things were, were kind of skirted. And not, like I said, not out of a sense of rebellion, just because the impact of, of a person's activity wasn't truly understood within that context. Yeah. You know, so we had a policy and she basically, you know, her daughter followed it, you know, that whenever she was out with friends, when she came back, we would quarantine her and that she would have yeah. to go get tested, you know. Um, and then we would basically, once the test came back uh, negative, you know, she was good to go, but she'd be basically wearing a mask through the house and everything like that. And the time got shortened, you know, so we were basically saying initially, it's like, you need to try to quarantine for about a week and get tested. You know, or you need to get like tested maybe like a week before you come back if you're going to be out with friends for a long period of time. You know, our friends would come in from out of town, you know, they would get a hotel room or stay at somebody's house or all yeah. kinds of other stuff like that.
Well, as the technology advanced and more technology was made available, you know, times shortened, but not realizing that you could have an exposure to COVID uh, and only have been exposed within 24 or 48 hours. And the tests, the, even the more reliable tests have a, a limited amount of reliability when you're asymptomatic, yeah. you know, and that you might not actually have enough of the virus, uh, you know, and it, it might, it, you might not be infected in places where you're, where you're actually going to detect it. So uh, the rapid test uh, with a person who's symptomatic only has about like 85 to 87% reliability. The PCR test itself, when a person is symptomatic has only about like 95 to 97% mm. reliability. When you're asymptomatic, it's anybody's guess. So she was basically walking around with like with an asymptomatic infection until she actually started developing mm. uh, symptoms about six or seven days later. Uh, and even that six and seven days, she didn't think of them really as anything until she lost yep. her sense of smell. And so luckily she had the presence of mind to get out of bed one morning and decided to, uh, she had registered for an appointment at the little clinic the night before, went over and got tested and then called home just in a panic that she had tested positive. And so we were all completely freaking yeah. out about this. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I can't, I can't bottle up my understanding of this, you know, and impart it on her to be able to have her like look for things and understand from that perspective and make choices. And I can't do that with her mother. So it became kind of like this weird sort of chain of telephone as to why we should do things. People were, were looking at procedures instead of the, the whole sort of pattern of, of understanding that goes around, like how COVID works, you know, and how this infection works and how we like, what sort of precautions that we should be and, uh, making. And, and the bottom line is that like when, when her friend came into town, they had actually gone to like a couple of, uh, a couple mm -hmm. of escape rooms and even though the escape rooms may have like a cleaning protocol, escape rooms are filled with a bunch of little things yeah. that you have to yep. touch, <laughs> you know, and, and they're closed in spaces. So it, it's very easy to miss something. And I'm not saying 100% that she contracted it from going to one of the escape rooms, but it also made me realize that she did not understand this enough as a system to have that inform yeah. her choices that she was basically going by rules of thumb and little heuristics. Yeah, and that's also a difficult thing to like for us to grasp too for I mean it's 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 also infuriating to know that like we could have all had more information, we could have all like been on a better page, but because of public policy um being so uh scattershot depending on which area you were in um Right. You know, certain guidelines were different depending on where you were. And, and that caused a lot of people to not uh, really grasp the gravity of the situation. And also you get those, right. like you said, like there's no way of knowing if she got it from the escape room or or somewhere else. Like we can't tell. And that's also the the, the fucking thing about like, you know, sometimes you can do everything right and still fucking catch it. Like there is no a hundred percent like guaranteed way of like, I mean, unless you were, unless you're in a sealed, like fucking bubble, like there's no way to right. completely, it uh, completely make sure you're not going to get it. Right. Yep. And I mean, and fortunately the result of that whole lockdown is that neither my girlfriend or awesome. I contracted it. Um, uh, 
And I mean, there could be a whole bunch of variables in there. Uh, she, her daughter is young, 20 years old. It could potentially be that the strength of her immune system started attacking the infection before she became really contagious. Another friend of mine who had it told me that her husband tested positive for it four days before he was actually mm. contagious. You know, and I have to follow up on that because I, I did not know that there's a, that there was a period of time uh, over which you could actually test positive mm -hmm. but not be contagious. So it just it really just points to how much we actually yeah. don't know, uh, you know. But it it is this thing that we we live in a society where we have imperfect information. Number one, we have varying levels of that imperfect information. We have different lifestyles that challenge our ability to actually comply with some of the policies that mm -hmm. are being made, because the policies are being made by people who are who are at oh, a yeah. distance, very safe. Um, you know we. And we were we were also in a situation where we had an infrastructure, uh, just sort of a, a safety and health infrastructure, which had been in part debilitated by the fact that the people that were supposed to be on top of all of this were fired by the yeah. last administration. Um, you know, and just really the fact that this was something so brand new to us. Um, you know, it. Uh, I keep looking around, thinking this could have been so much worse. It could have been so, so much worse. Um, and we were warned about this too. <laughs> I mean, there were talks and papers given about you know about this sort of stuff. You know, the, the famous one that everybody points to. The one that I actually saw when it came out was Bill Gates's TED talk about what a pathogen that takes a long time uh, to actually show symptoms, but is immediately contagious, could actually uh -huh. do to us. You know. And other, and again, the the pattern seekers basically turned that into the narrative that uh, Bill Gates planned it because he oh, basically God knew about damn it. it. It's like that's it's like that's that's not exactly how that uh, works, you know. Like all of a sudden, the the person who told you I told you so is all of a sudden responsible for for the no, thing that they, they told did, you yeah, so they about. Did the he who smelt yeah. it dealt it of COVID. Right. Fuck. Yeah. That's so you know. silly. So, I mean, yeah, there's, so there are a lot of things that really just that kind of caught us. And I, I think we're, we're super, super, yeah. super lucky um, that we, that we had the tools to fight this, that we lived in a situation that didn't see us having consequences, say like oh. Italy, um, you know, uh, or some of the, some of the other uh, European nations that had to deal with this, um, you know, which seem to be hit particularly hard by it. And it's, it's always really hard to even actually know what's happening outside mm. of the Western world because we don't get as much information from those places. We don't know what the yeah. testing is like, you know? So, so we're lucky in the sense that it's not as bad as it could have been with something else. You know, this was already just mad contagious and we're already in a situation too, where we're finding we're like more contagious and deadlier strains are popping up, you know, but, but luckily, the work that we've done has in some way, shape, or form insulated us against that. And the process of actually being able to come up with the mRNA that is yep. used in the vaccine has been simplified that we can, you know, once we get a new strain, we can come up with the, with the mRNA that we need in about a week. We still have to go through the process of, of rigorous vetting and testing, you know, for safety concerns, yes. which we should. But at least we know that we have the foundation for we have the process and the foundation for what we I mean, need considering to do the fact place. that when this all started, we were sitting around like looking at all these news stories coming out like uh, at 
the soonest we can expect like a vaccination within a year and a half and to to have that process be refined down to like within a year itself was just uh mind-blowing yeah and and there were risks taken with of course that. i actually had the i had the joy of actually listening to them uh, Tom Check, who is a professor of biochemistry at the at CU Boulder, who's also a Nobel laureate, he won uh, he won the Nobel Prize in biochemistry, I think, mm-hmm. in 1989, uh, which was the year that I had actually started college. Uh, CU actually gave a free Zoom lecture by him on Wednesday. Uh, it was open to the public, and he was basically talking about the technologies behind this and the whole process. Uh, that went into coming up with this stuff. And he he was realistic in talking about some of the, not the quarters that we cut, but some of the processes we had to shrink down. You know, processes that usually run end to end, like the tail end of one and the beginning end of another one had to kind of overlap in order for us to get to a solution as fast yeah. as we did. Um, you know, and so there was there was a level of gamble that was taken there. But it was a situation where in this case, the gamble paid off. And one of the one of the, the results of that is that we now have a process by which we can actually analyze the virus and come up with an mRNA fast enough where we can actually start going into the testing and the vetting and the trials a lot. Sooner. Yeah, and that's sort of the competition that our species and viruses have had uh, for as long as we've been interacting with each other is, you know, they will evolve. Yeah. And so we will have to find, you know, brand new ways of dealing with them. Uh, in quicker and, and stronger uh, responses, and then they will evolve again, and this this right. dance just keeps going. Yeah, oh, yeah, it is. It's it's crazy. It's amazing. I've uh, I've spent a lot of time reading the scientific literature uh, behind mm-hmm. all of this this year. My my ac- my academic background before I dropped out of college was in molecular cellular development <laughs> and biology. So I I I mm-hmm. love this stuff. And I will go out and I will find a lot of the scientific articles written on, you know, on the biology of these things. And it's, there's so much there in terms of how this actually works. And you just start seeing in nature how these dynamic systems work in order to kind of move themselves forward and how they in turn sort of interact with us and how we become sort of like these variables and factors Mm. in this whole process. You know, that, that like we push the virus forward by getting infected. You know, it's a, it's a very different thing from, from bacterial mm. infections. Uh, you know, viruses, human beings are really basically virus mm. reactors. Uh, and so virus, like RNA viruses, they basically replicate in a way that's imperfect. And so we become kind of like this environment by which they can run all these experiments, you know, replicate all these different ways and go down different branches like a tree and stuff like that. And then sometimes emerge is more deadly and sometimes emerge is less deadly. Uh, but we're uh, like any, any host that can be infected by a virus is key to that whole process. They actually refer to them as, as less of, a, of an individual virus as more of a co-evolving swarm. Oh, that, that is horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, oh it, it is horrifying. It's like, and there, and, and there's no, there's no, there's no, um, there's no process behind it. There's no, no will behind it. So it's not like these things are just kind of like, you know, this is what we're going to do. It's just like it's it's how they interact yeah. with us. It's just a it's just the mechanism yeah. by which they interact. You know, so just like reading some of that, you could sometimes from you know from the perspective of 
of of a of a scientific mind and even just kind of like thinking about you know just the science fiction literature that i've read so like these are some of the possible consequences of that that we could end up getting into a place where we get a more deadly ver- like a deadly version if we don't nip this in yeah. the bud quickly uh you know because the, the more bodies you expose to it uh the more processes you have working in parallel to create something potentially and everything deadlier. that I've read so far has led, you know, it, it just seems to be affirming the idea that because we did not act as soon as we could have, because we did not act uh, with more unity and take this thing seriously from the jump, it is most likely that this virus is now endemic, that it will just be, um, part of our lives um maybe not like not this drastically but it will be around uh like the flu is now yeah yeah it will be it will be uh it has it has a high r not value which is a measure of Mm -hmm. how contagious it is uh and the i think like the r not value for for the COVID 19 uh basically says there's a potential of infecting 18 different people like 18 people upon contact where I think the, for the flu, it's maybe like oh. one or two people. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things because we don't have that 100% cooperation uh, and we have not reached herd immunity yet that we have this situation where there could always be pockets of COVID existing in our community. And if a person who is immunocompromised uh, is infected they become this environment by which the virus has more opportunities to replicate into something potentially more contagious. And with a lot of the research that's been done, that's the suspicion around why we're kind of seeing these more contagious variants uh, like the, um, what is it, like the B1351, which is the one mm. from South Africa, and the P P1, which I think yep. is the one from Brazil, uh, are popping up, you know, that there's a good chance that those were virus strains that basically incubated in somebody or a group of people who are immunocompromised. Uh, and then poof, out they come. <laughs> the, the, the oven goes ding Ooh, and dinner's ready. Yeah. And also, I mean, you, you brought up the term herd immunity, which um, is not very like people don't understand that concept as well as they think they do. I didn't understand it as well as I right. thought I did. Like when initially people like brought up the idea of herd immunity, like I didn't really think, like I didn't buy into it. Like, oh yeah, let's just get everybody infected and then we'll be okay. It was more like, okay, yeah, I guess right. there's something like I, I, you know, I was struck. I did not major in molecular biology. So I'm like sitting here going like, what the fuck do I remember from high school science class about how viruses? Right. Were? But it turns out like, you know, herd immunity I mean, and, and fucking countries like experimenting with that being the policy of like response to the virus is just let everybody fucking get it, you know, as not right. understanding like the role that fucking vaccinations play in establishing herd immunity. Right. Yeah. Herd immunity is basically just a, a, distri- a distribution of people who are immune throughout the population that can insulate more, uh, more vulnerable populations yeah. from actually getting it more vulnerable and less vulnerable. We, we basically render ourselves uh, as, as non-vectors or, re, or, re, or reduced vectors that we're, we're, there's less of a potential for us to pass it on to someone because our immune systems can kick into gear and take care of the virus faster. 
you know, that's not a 100% guarantee, but it's one of those things where people don't inherently have this understanding mm-hmm. of risk. It, it, re, it reduces the risk and it reduces the probability. People are very used to thinking in terms of absolutes, either it mm-hmm. will or it won't. And that's another type of thinking that's really kind of broken Oof. us around this thing. Yep. And uh, I mean, this, this, of course, this virus, this pandemic has been a huge, if not the huge defining factor of the last year. But that said, there were many other things that did occur this last year that um, really impacted a lot of us, especially in the United States. So when we come back from break, we are going to discuss um, your experience of those um, and just get into a little more of a recap of, of, what we have all been through uh, in the last 365. So um, my guest today is DeAndre Carroll. Um, We are going to take a quick break, freshen our drinks, and we will be right back. And we are back. Uh, My guest today is uh, the first guest we ever had on this show, DeAndre Carroll. DeAndre, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Excellent, excellent. We're all refreshed from break. So um, in continuing the recap, because I didn't want, I wanted to make sure we didn't just spend our entire time just talking about COVID-19, because I'm sure all of y'all have heard enough about this fucking virus (laughs) over the last year. Um, to last a lifetime and we're still going to hear about it like children's textbooks are going to be all full of shit with this so in any case um, 2020 was a we thought that the worst thing that was going to happen to us was the pandemic and we were wrong Um, there were so many other things that started popping up uh, over the, the course of the year, one of the most notable things was just the gigantic worldwide response to the uh, slaying of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, and then spot, you know, spotlighting Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, and you know, just many of the uh, black men and women uh, that we have lost uh, at the hands of systemic oppression. So um in that regard, uh, speaking in your capacity as a black man in America, what was last year like for you in that respect? Um, I think for a lot of black people, it, it has – I can't speak for everyone, uh, but I have really kind of talked about this as kind of a common experience that it's, that it's pretty much been business as usual yeah. uh, because where the world – is seeing like the the world outside of the black community is seeing a lot of this stuff exposed in such an ostentatious way this is a reality that we've lived with Mm -hmm. um and it seems like it really takes these more extreme versions and by that i mean in the way that they're captured in the way that they're presented to the world yeah in order for people to realize these things are happening. Um, you know, because there's, there's a long laundry list of, of, of people that have suffered, you know, in yeah. situations like this, but, it, but George Floyd is, is the name that's, that's really kind of like tied to it now. And Breonna Taylor to a lesser degree, which, which speaks to a lot about how we ignore these things that happened to black women. Yeah. Um, you know, that it, that it took, George Floyd and the horrific way in which he died actually being captured 
for people to start having more of a conversation about Breonna Taylor, even though she happened first. Months after the fact. Yeah. 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 Months, months after the fact. And a lot of these things that do happen, we've seen in the last few years, only get traction after there is a large social media outcry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, my concerns around all of this and, and, and maybe it's a level of cynicism, which I, which I try to avoid, but we see it happen a lot, uh, especially in the United States. It's just like, how long will it be before this is really kind of swallowed up in the tide once again? You know, and who, will, who will be the next one? Yeah, who will be the next one? It's just like we, we have a very limited memory for these things. Yeah. Um, we have this tendency as human beings, and it's one of our vulnerabilities that history only shapes us so long as it's within living memory. Um, and a lot of the way that we're exposed to this is not really a living memory. It's, mm-hmm. it's an image through social media. It's an, it's an image you know, on video and on the news. And we're at this place now where, where things are processed and manipulated so much that sometimes you know, a level of cynicism is built into the society because we don't really know what to believe anymore. You know, that, that we can be shown true things, but then we wonder, is it really that extreme? know does it really exist to that extent or are we focusing on one small perspective that we're amplifying you know or are we taking something that's much more serious and let it be swallowed up in a bunch of ancillary facts you know and, and ancillary conversations that are meant to sort of dilute the importance of the thing that we're actually looking at yeah you know so it, it's for a lot of folks like i said it's it, it is business as usual that doesn't mean that we're not trying to seize upon the opportunity to deepen the discussion uh you know yeah and i and i I don't want to clarify too sorry to cut you off but i want to uh, you know for for those listening in like i apologize if i made this seem like this was a novel experience um i realized like the framing of the question uh definitely made it seem that way um yeah as deandre has said this is uh, business as usual in America. And most of the black friends that I have uh, treated it as such. I think um, one of the reasons I, I asked this particular question is that um, a good number of the people in my life are so used to this shit that there was like an extreme fatigue, uh, especially during the periods where the video was just constantly in everyone's news feed constantly being shared, constantly being replayed in the, in the news. Um, there was just this extreme exhaustion and uh, shutdown for some of my friends and, and partners and, and people that I love that um, it was like genuinely concerning because like, yeah, there's the, you hear about shit like this every few months and a lot of people like get angry, but also a lot of people shake it off because it's like ain't shit changed. Right. But like the level of fatigue that I, I noticed uh, being completely outside of the community um, was uh, different, at least from my limited experience in the short amount of time that I've been alive and looking at and even shorter amount of time that I've been conscious of any of this shit. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I mean, there, there's a lot of that. Like I said, just like there's a level of fatigue. But we also have to think about like how we seize upon this opportunity to educate people more. You know, it mm. just it's it struck me how we are more insulated from the reality of our neighbors 
and from any type of racism or discrimination, you know, whether that mm-hmm. be sexism or or discrimination by race and ethnicity or whether it be LGBTQIA uh, type discrimination, we're more insulated from that than we've been insulated from a virus, you know, mm. that has that has debilitated the, the country so much. It's just like a virus. You can't ignore it. I mean, yeah, people actually <laughs> I say that people say challenge accepted because a lot of people actually <laughs> really have. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people really have ignored it, you know, but it's just there. There still is just a, a tremendous amount of a lack of knowledge about these things because they aren't in living memory. And we live in sort of an information and narrative landscape that's set up to minimize these things. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we've been doing over the last couple of decades is trying to figure out how to break that process of minimization. Mm. Um, You know, but, but the discussions themselves become really fatiguing we have so many built-in ways of, of just really kind of skirting this stuff aside. You have people that talk about social justice. And I think the biggest way to kind of take the bite out of something is to turn it into a joke, you know, mm-hmm. or, or turn it into an exaggeration. So you talk about social justice. Well, you know, from that you have the, 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 the idea or the concept or the phrase social justice warrior that pops up, which yeah. becomes really, you know, this, it, it really becomes this pejorative way of talking about things and minimizing, you know, the, the discussion. Uh, yeah. We seem to have this whole process of, of the transmutation of ideas from their original intent to make them almost laughable. And if not laughable, this thing that, that introduces a certain amount of scorn or disdain. Yeah. You know, we, have, we have the concept, we have this, this discussion right now that we're having around cancel culture. And, um, you know, cancel culture in the current context has been brought to the fore because of a lot of things that have been going on with, with uh, say, Dr. Seuss uh, and some of the stuff with Pepe Le Pew and yeah. Gina Carano being fired from The Mandalorian, yeah. you know, and all kinds of stuff like that. And and the conversation around it has been co-opted to, to this belief that it's that it's that you're, you're basically silencing, uh, quote unquote, conservative voices, which is not true. You know, but it, it becomes this thing where, you know, cancel culture is, is ruining the world. And, but that is an evolution from an honest discussion around cancel culture that um, that had been had by a lot of people before any of this stuff happened. Most notably, Barack Obama talked about cancel culture, I want to say maybe like in 2018, mm-hmm. where he was talking to young activists and basically saying that you know you have to cancel culture came up later in the discussion but you basically have to get past this idea of just shutting down people you know mm-hmm. um, because it becomes very easy to focus on a thing without looking at it in context mm. you know and then as a result uh, basically having that narrative or that context swallowed up again uh, based on a series of steps that don't provide any type of real understanding around it. You know, and so then over time that kind of mutated into, you know, where the discussion there was just kind of like you can't let cancel culture, you know, rule your lives or ruin your lives or disincentivize you from acting. You know, mm. that was the point that he was trying to make. Don't don't let this idea of canceling people stop create a cynicism and an apathy in you 
that prevents you from acting because at that point it seemed like that was the path that it was going down mm. you know where, where cancel culture then mutates into this this current discussion around oh well you're 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 killing all of the good stuff or you're or you're you're basically ruining discussions just like oh no you're not ruining ruining discussion we're having the discussion and the and basically the practices of people have been found wanting you know it's just yeah. like you like conservative culture you know people that are basically saying that we're canceling conservative culture is just like okay well then you've basically admitted to conservative culture being like sexism and racism and all these other things because these are the things that we're canceling yeah and you know, also it, like these a lot of things to speak on that sorry to cut you off but um no, just go ahead. specific things like uh dr seuss for example or uh i don't know if it's hasbro whoever creates potato head or Better. all that shit um these were internal decisions uh, yes. that we yes. weren't shouting for like right. we, nobody like nobody was hitting the streets to fucking protest dr seuss like we were very aware of his racism like uh-huh. you know th- these these things have been in discussion for a long time but no that that was never a priority these were internal um fucking decisions and the it, it's really funny to see conservatives freak out about it when it's like, I'm sorry, I, I thought you guys were about um, the market doing as it will. And if the private right. if private companies make decisions based on who they want to sell to or who they want to appeal to or just their own internal sense of ethics, um, you are the ones who have been advocating for their right to do so. Unless it's it, unless it goes against something that you happen to for some fucked up reason support. Right, right you know and even like it's funny like with uh, with the dr seuss especially i saw an og in the dance community uh you know, railing about like cancel culture in that specific thing um talk, uh, and i think the specific uh example was um if i ran the zoo which has yeah. some really fucking racist depictions of asians right like yeah. the slant uh-huh. even even the lyrics in the in the the sorry the the verse uh yeah. talk about like wearing their eyes at a slant and this and that and this person who was not asian who also understands like systemic oppression was going on about cancel culture but also i'm like yo man like that's uh, that's that's a little that's a weird a weird hill to die on i think yeah personally yeah, yeah. And no yeah. disrespect to that og like um but that's a weird hill to die on yeah you know, yep. You know, we're at this realization that the things, the way things were done, were not the great way for things to be done. And I think people are complaining. It's just like you know, back in the good old days, everyone could take a joke. It's like back in the good old days, we had to take a joke because we had no voice. Didn't have an option. Yeah, we didn't have an option. And I think that people are are basically confusing the lack of a voice and a silence with being complicit and being accepting. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, we knew all this stuff was messed up and we did our best to educate ourselves in our homes about how this stuff was messed up. Yeah. But that wasn't a conversation you could take to like the larger mass, you know, to the larger media, you know, this, this was an age also too, where doctors used to smoke cigarettes. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And there was lead yeah. in the gasoline. Yeah. There was lead in the gasoline, you know? Mm-hmm. So just, it's, we are in a world where we try to progress and try to do better. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a potential for real cancel culture, not this ginned up version that people are talking about yeah. real cancel culture to sort of like take things out of context and also put people in a situation where they become really numb to the world. They believe that 
that nothing has worth. And so we should do nothing, yeah. you know, or that, that like everything is bad. So what's the point in even trying? And you I know, think that's they, the, I think that's why they are like uh, conservative media is like um, exaggerating uh, this, you know, manufacturing this, this outrage that, you know, nobody was screaming about before because they right. do want to blunt uh, progress. They do want to make it all look uh, ridiculous. So they're going to seize on these little things and like blow them blow them up so that eventually you know we get to that point where like yeah no movement can succeed or prosper because everyone has developed such a sense of cynicism and apathy that uh right yeah the energy the the wind just goes out of the sail yeah i just always just have to wonder what what that agenda is because Mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of that that silencing of the conversation Mm -hmm. you know and the diminishing of the conversation and then we're also seeing acts of volition that are really you know, horrible. We're seeing like this, this resurgence post-election of attempts in voter suppression. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, it's just like, at the end of the day, I just have to like ask, it's just like conservatives, you know, Republicans. And I, and I hate to put those labels on that because I feel like we are taking the actions of a smaller percentage of a group of people, extending them to a whole demographic but then there are also people in that demographic who become complicit to these things and adopt those arguments and that way of thinking and and vote to ensure these practices are upheld right and vote to ensure these practices are upheld i just i have to wonder what what the end game is because i it's not that i even have to wonder what the end game is uh i have to wonder how people are kind of justifying these actions Mm. against a, a kind of end game that has become more clear to a lot of us. Yeah. You know, you suppress the vote and it just like, you're, you're basically moneyballing it. You found all the ways that certain groups that vote against you actually vote and you're erecting laws to try to make it difficult to, to engage in those practices, you know, but you're doing it for this, for this, uh, ginned up, you know, situation of, of election fraud. Yeah. Uh, you know, of voter fraud. Um, you know, just like we had, we've had the discussion in the last few years about uh, the Confederate statues being taken down. It's mm-hmm. like, well, their history is just like, well, you know, their history, but what is that history saying? You don't basically have to erase history, but you can put history in a museum. Also, a lot of those monuments were put up not like immediately after the war, they were put up within right. the, civil, the original civil in the 60s by the sisters of the confederacy as a means of yeah, daughters, 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 of daughters sorry about that um yeah so yeah. close but so far the daughters of the confederacy who were uh intentionally like supporting these things to intimidate uh black citizens like we were putting up monuments to, right. you know celebrating uh these oppressors essentially you right. know and you can ha- you can take those statues and you can uh, put them in a museum uh, one of my partners also like she's getting her PhD in sociology. She's like, you know, for me, like I'd be fine with leaving them up so long as we have big, big plaques all around them explaining like what kind of fucked up thinking this was and contextualizing them for for future generations who are going to see these statues if we leave them up. You know, yeah, I'd be great. With, I'd be I would be great with that, too. It's just like, don't don't leave them up for people to draw their own conclusions out from a bunch of other. Yes, false narratives. exactly. 
put them in context. Absolutely. Put them in context. Um, and so in terms of like the, the, the after effects of, uh, the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, et cetera, within the scope of the dance community. For me personally, like I have noticed um, in ways that I didn't see before a lot of these discussions happening, a lot of um, uh, anti-racism work and anti-racism specifically uh, like education and discussions holding certain dancers and certain studios and certain institutions profiting off of black culture uh more to account so i was wondering like if you've noticed this in your you know as a a veteran of uh our local dance community i have noticed it and it's it's one of those things that i want to think about how to have these conversations the conversations are important i don't i don't like symbolic Mm. actions that are not really connected to depth and don't think about like real transparent lip service. Um, Yeah. Paying lip service. I don't, I don't like the idea of a gesture without thought because just like cancel culture, it can be transmuted and transformed into something else that goes against what the original purpose was. It's basically using, using, using the act to, to defeat the intent. Yes. Yeah. Well, I said you know, Black Lives Matter uh, on the sign, so you know I've done my part. What are you guys still mad about? Right. Right. You know. Um, you know that it, that it's 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 more than that because Black Lives Matter becomes basically a catchy marketing yep. slogan, and still becomes a point of contention for discussion around people who are really trying to reframe the phrase as something that it's mm. not. I've seen rifts in the last year between members of the dance community and their families specifically around yes, that. I have too. Because, because one of them decided to frame the phrase with an intent that it doesn't have yeah. and basically became really incensed at the fact that people were actually using it as a statement to put out there and to defend yeah. You know, uh, just really kind of a, a, a deliberate and willful ignorance around the context. And I've had discussions with people online about that stuff, even outside of the dance community. Mm. You know, just dance is just, the things that we're doing in dance are really just kind of a microcosm of the society as a whole. And I think we have a platform in dance because it is so intersectional. Uh, I think that especially when you're dealing with black dance, you know, particularly uh, the modern uh urban colloquial and vernacular styles uh you have a platform to talk about these things a little bit more than say i would have a chance to talk about them in my job as a absolutely software that is the that is the big yeah. thing that dif- uh, differentiates us from all the other microcosms out there well right. i mean many of them like you, you yeah. uh, the the conversations in the music community conversations in you know uh fashion etc a lot of this is also uh based on black cultural creation yeah, and it, it's and it's a situation where we have that platform because co- performance and art communities are built so much on the kind of grassroots relationships that people form with one yeah. another. Uh, whereas I think you know the work that I do as a software engineer or people working in other industries, those are really kind of systems where a person comes in fulfilling a need. 
you know, are they capable to fulfill a need? You know, they can, they can bring levels of creativity and industry and education to those things. But at the end of the day, the job that they're actually supposed to do is really more or less dictated by the environment in which they're plugging into which they're plugging in dance and art. Well, I mean, dance as a form of art, as well as like other art forms, you are bringing your perspective in and your perspective really drives the way that you interact with other people and how your community mm. develops. Absolutely. So, so it, it does, it does create that platform for us to discuss it a lot more. It's, it's a really kind of strange thing to me. Uh, just kind of growing up and seeing all of this stuff and just like the transformation and the interaction between people over time. Because I remember there was a time, you know, when hip hop wasn't really anything that, that was done by anybody that wasn't black and Latino, you know, in my lifetime, it has developed a following in large communities in in Europe and in Asia, you know, but, but I can remember back to a time when it was pretty much only done by blacks and Latinos. And, and, and I am removed from the source of that. Like I didn't grow up in New York. You know, I didn't grow up in the, I didn't grow up in the Northeast coast because, you know, like the, the elements that are in these different dance forms and cultural forms were, you know, as far South as Philadelphia, you know, as far North as New York and, and Millicent Johnny brought up like a, a really interesting statement that, that I keep kind of at my core of my thoughts whenever she brought this up in the in a discussion in disciples of funk. And I keep in my core of my thoughts. It's just like, you know, Black and Latino people everywhere were going through the same thing. And they were basically creating art. They were creating dance. They were creating all of these Mm. different things. But hip hop is the thing that became rooted in the popular imagination and blew up. Mm. You know, know, it's just like, it's not that it was was better or more interesting or more powerful. It's just that you had it in a place where you had access to the networks of information and exposure that allowed it Mm -hmm. to blow up. You know, a lot of people will talk about the scene with the b-boys and flash dance mm-hmm. as their first exposure to hip-hop especially b-boying that captured their imagination mm-hmm. you see like you see ogs in japan talking about that you see ogs in, in europe talking about that you know specifically people uh like in germany like b-boys in germany talking about that mm-hmm. sort of thing you know uh, but i've seen this progression over time where even in my lifetime you know, black and Latino and non-black and Latino people were very separate in the types of things that they would do, you know, socially and for fun. And that there was a younger generation of, of non-black and Latino people who became interested in this thing. They were basically sort of steeped in the media that presented the culture and really kind of glommed onto it. They were exposed to it. It It's just like, I love this, you know, and this is, this is a thing that's pretty amazing. And they would dig deep into it. They became very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people that that glommed onto it on sort of a surface level, and other people that really kind of dug their heels in and really learned. So I think, like when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, there wasn't really a space or a platform to have these types of discussions. You know, and now you have kind of a situation where you have like a lot of people, and I say non-black and Latino because it's not just white. There's a, there's a bigger breadth of, you know, of, of participation in this Absolutely. community for me to just kind of narrow it down to one group of people. You know, now we have people that are in this community. They have, be, they have become technically proficient um, 
but a large amount of people have been become like historically, culturally, and socially ignorant about these sort of things. And so now that you're kind of right up alongside of people where the culture and the history is actually embedded in the practice, mm. it becomes a little more, not impossible, but a little more difficult to ignore and not have these conversations, especially when they're looking to OG, like, you know, when they're looking to OGs who are black and yeah. Latino. Yeah. And it's uh, this interesting, I mean, I hate using the word interesting for shit like this because like people are suffering and it's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Like he said from his, he said <laughs> from his fucking armchair. Um, yeah. But it's this, uh, particularly now, like within the last week uh, for those uh, paying attention to the news, the uh, killings in Atlanta, um, a, 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 a white man, a, 21 year old white man went to uh, massage parlors and shot up uh, and killed uh, eight people, six of whom were Asian women. And so on social media now we're, we're talking about, you know, we're having this, uh, this whole, uh, the stop Asian hate, deeper discussions of Asian discrimination. It's sort um, and, and violence against Asian people, especially in the wake of, the the virus and the previous administration like you know calling it the china virus and the kung flu and all this shit and how that's reflected uh -huh. in the street dance community is you know from what i've seen so far like a lot of asian dancers like having these um uh going through a lot of difficult emotions re uh, regarding this and then also asking for um support uh from like the black community but also there being like, uh, you know, tense discussions with that, you know, based on um, sort of these communities like being pitted against each other uh, through white supremacy. You know? Right. Yeah. You know, anti-Asian discrimination has been with us for a long oh, time. Yeah. It is it is deeply rooted historically in this society. And I think that people don't pay attention to that and have to be reminded every time something like this high profile happens to people. You know, we have a lot of history with different communities in the United States, not just black and Latino communities. And I think that, you know, the positions that were put in and the structure of those things really typically tends to, to steer and control the discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I've been happy to say that the larger portion of the community that I know, especially among black and Latino dancers, are all on board. It's just like, you know, this is just kind of another manifestation of the hate that we see that's that's rooted deeply in white supremacy, yeah. you know, um, and, and we need to be on board to support, yeah. you know, our brothers and sisters in these communities. I've also seen other people that have taken these narratives around divisions and animosity that that exist in certain places and can sometimes pop up. I just I don't I don't understand the lack of empathy given all of the things that we've gone through that you can see another group of people suffering and then resort to this kind of what about is well, what about this? Well what about that? That's not the entire yeah. world. It's like don't don't take don't take an issue that you have with a small, like geographically specific population of interaction that's negative 
and translate that to like the larger problem that we're seeing because that's how we lose yeah. focus. You know, that's that's how like that that's how we basically end up in the same shithole that we're in right now. Yeah. You know, um, I don't really know what else to to say about that. Like, I like to try to consider myself a student of mm-hmm. history. Uh, you know, and so I do try to learn about the plights of other people. And I've and just like, and even just like a lot of the resources that I read are just like the history, you know, of black people in the United States are fairly intersectional. And they talk about just like the history of a lot of other folks. And I'm just, just not that other person. I'm just not that person to believe that people are just like inherently evil. I have even some of my own, I have some of my own concerns about the way that we actually even discuss white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that we have too closely tied it to individuals and this perceived nature of individuals mm. than a system that has been created and perpetuated. Yeah. You know, uh, I can get I can get into this whole discussion about how I don't like the re- the reductionist discussion about blaming white men for everything. You know, I understand the relationship there to white supremacy, but I also believe that we get into this discussion where we end up kind of treating white male individuals as if they themselves are the source of the problem. Mm. What? Know, I don't, I don't, yeah, no, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's coming, I don't, I don't know if that's coming across clearly. I think that we've, that we've taken a mode of thought and a system that's pernicious. And that's not to say that there aren't people at fault. I'm not trying to erase this from the fault of individuals. Uh, I am saying the way that we have started discussing it has become too conceptually convenient and I, to, to really make and progress. I, you know, I, I definitely hear you, but I, at the same time, also, like, um, I tend to see things as going in terms of, like, uh, a, a torpedo, a guided torpedo, right? It's it doesn't just like lock onto a target and make a straight beeline there. Like uh, the little computer, right. like it's going to steer it in one direction. And then when it gets too off course, it's going to steer it back. It's going to course correct. And then if it goes too much in that direction, it's going to, you know, it, it's constant micro corrections on the path to hitting the target. Um, and so, right. you know, speaking in my capacity as a white guy, who's a uh, uh, guest uh-huh. of the culture, um, it is one of those, like, I understand, uh, why these discussions are happening the way they are right now, or at least I feel like I do because for so long it, it was just a, there was no personal accountability whatsoever. So it was one of those, as long as I'm not wearing a hood and burning a cross in somebody's yard and using the N word, then I can't possibly be racist. And it's like, well, no motherfucker. Like this, you know, there's an entire system that you and I were raised in and we, uh, we, we swam in this shit for a long time and it affected how we think and it affected how we treat people regardless of our intent. And I'm not saying like, you know, we need to be demonized, but at the same time, like sometimes these harsher discussions do need to be had in order to like shine a spotlight on this thing that otherwise is too easy for us to just sweep under the rug because we're not um, rabid uh, fucking Klansmen. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with that. I agree with all of that. What I'm saying is that I think that sometimes the conversation itself becomes too Mm -hmm. simplified. Uh, and this in this way that we're actually trying to we use it as a convenient excuse at a certain point in time to demonize mm. a person instead of really kind of understanding all of that stuff that gotcha. you just laid out the whole framework gotcha. of this thing 
You know, I was just like having conversations with people about racism where somebody basically tried to try to confine racism to this semantic argument that there are no the person actually had the nerve to say that there are they're really not mostly that there aren't a whole lot of racists anymore. And they tried to create this argument, you know, because racism is defined as people who believe themselves superior based on their race and blah, 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 blah. A very sort of narrow oh, textbook description description of racism. Reductive. But it's that very thing. Yeah, it's, it's that very thing that you were talking about. Oh, well, because like I, I don't burn crosses anymore and I'm not hanging, you know, anybody that's non-white. I'm not really racist. It's like bullshit. Yeah. You know, there, it's, there's a much more – it's not even nuanced. It's just like <laughs> there's a much more diverse and systematic – Comprehensive. And systemat- systematized, yeah, comprehensive, um, you know, dynamic at work there that is not removed because of you want to create this sort of reductive – very conveniently phrased and self-serving phrased definition of what racism mm. is. You know, it, it's one of these things where when we talk about it, I think there's a lot of productive talk about it, but then also sometimes I think that it, that it does become this thing where it's, it becomes super reductive in the sense that we're focusing more uh, on people on the surface of how they look and projecting on them what we think their experience is instead of having real substantive discussions around race, racism, and the systems. And yeah, I mean, there's so much like complexity regarding these systemic issues that you're talking about that make it hard to like boil it down into like these little, um, these, these small interviews that we do, which is, both good and bad it's it's good in the sense that like you know we need to be having these larger discussions but also bad that so many people's attention spans uh especially in this day and age are so limited right i, I want to make one i want to make one point about this because I, I keep thinking about this and i'm sort of all over the place oh yeah hit it, hit it. <laughs> and, I, and i think in terms of trying to make this more concrete mm-hmm. is that what i'm having conversations you know with white people around mm-hmm. race you know, there there can be people who push back firmly against it and really don't actually see those systems and those dynamics that we're talking mm-hmm. about. And then we have people that are on the flip side that kind of engage in this sort of white guilt phenomenon. Oof. And they become so focused on that that you don't have a discussion around it. And, and they basically kind of adopt that. And so, in some cases, that's been adopted almost kind of as a I don't know, not as a, necessarily a safety mechanism. I'm not really sure what, what word to use to describe that, but it, it also hinders the discussion. But then there are people that also kind of seize on that white guilt phenomenon, and that's really the only response that they're actually looking for, mm. you know, for a person to basically kind of fall into that white guilt space. And all of those types of reactions, those dynamics kill the conversation. And that's what I mean that it becomes oversimplified, mm. you know, and it becomes very easy in, a, in an attempt to try to get that person to that white guilt space to kind of lump every sin of white supremacy, you know, and, and white racism and things like that on that person. Mm. You know, instead of like, let's have an honest discussion about this. You know, I, I go through discussions all the time and I hear people talk all the time where somebody will say a thing and they want to know who said it first instead of examining the thing itself for its rightness or wrongness. Mm. It's right or wrong. It doesn't matter who said it. Mm-hmm. You know, you take it in the context in which it's said, you know, um, which, is, which is different than necessarily who said it. 
but either the thing is right or wrong, you know, and then you, you go from that discussion and, and, and talk about it there. You know, like if, if a black person says something mm. and you agree with the thing that they said, because that person is black and a white person says that same thing, but you disagree with them just because they're white. Are you listening to the discussion? Mm. It is important to take those things in the context. Like if the white person is saying it in the context of some really other fucked up shit, <laughs> then talk about then talk about the context of the fucked up shit that they're basically trying to co-opt that thing and put yeah. it into. You know, but if you have two people basically saying the same thing and having an agreement and stuff like that, and you're discounting one person because of where they're coming from, you're not having the discussion. Mm. You know, it becomes it becomes a matter of optics. Yeah. I mean, you want to be on the right side. But I mean, in terms of like that guilt that you're speaking of, I think that's kind of, unfortunately, I've experienced that as a sort of necessary in-between stage of the people that, because I firmly believed that white privilege was bullshit up until about nine years ago. Um, and I, you know, would, would have fucking arguments and I'd get butthurt and all the classical uh, fragile white male behavior um, that people talk about nowadays, I exhibited. Um, and it went from that into uh, a state of profound guilt uh, when I started like understanding um, that I was not in possession of the full information. Um, and then there comes, I think, a necessary next step to that if you're doing the work is understanding that white guilt at the end of the day still centers you as a white person and your feelings yeah. instead of taking part in an honest and open conversation. I have friends who are, because of George Floyd, white friends who are like actually, you know, doing anti-racism work uh, regarding like their own um, uh, implicit biases, you know, and there, a lot uh -huh. of them are in like these very guilty states right now and they'll talk to me about it. And I'm like, that's cool, man. I get that. Try not to stay in that too long because that doesn't help anybody. And it still centers your shit. Yeah. Right. Right. Don't let that, don't let that become like your reason for doing all of this stuff. Yeah. You know, like, or don't, don't let it be your continued reason for doing all that stuff. It can definitely be a catalyst where you're like, Oh, you know, shit, this is where kind of I like, I sit in this and I need to do more work. It's like, I, I can see the analog to that because I always think about it in terms of, uh, of misogyny, yes, you know, yes. and, and politics around sexism. Yes. You know, it's just like, I, I have to take stock in what my life is as a cis male you know yeah and i have to think about the privilege that i have because of that that doesn't mean that people are kind of propping me up you know but it does mean that i don't have to deal with the same types of dynamics that women have actually had to deal with and i have to think about that you know am i walking around beating myself up because i'm a man and i haven't lived my life as a woman no but i also have to be mindful that there's an, there's an existence and experience that women have lived that I have not. And I do my best to try to understand that and engage in honest discussion around women and also take that critical eye to myself about, ah, oh, you know what, this, this thing that I'm doing is hurtful. And I have to think about the dynamics of that, but I'm not tearing myself down because of it. Yeah. You Cause know? that, that's I don't, not going to help anybody I, in the long run. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not going to help anybody, mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's uh yeah you can you can be fully cognizant of how you have benefited from uh you know a male privilege or you know if in my case white privilege heterosexual privilege cisgendered etc so many um 
you can be fully cognizant of that and and be working to um you know dismantle that and at the same time like not you know constantly being uh profoundly guilt-ridden right experience i I can still maintain yeah sorry go on i can still maintain my dignity yeah i can still maintain my dignity as a human being and not diminish somebody else in the process of that yes you know and i think i think the, the dignity as a human being doesn't mean tone policing it doesn't mean like, oh, well, you shouldn't say things like that. It's just like, well, no, I mean, you like speak honestly, but also remember that you're speaking to another human being. Don't try to make me some abstract concept, mm-hmm. you know, that becomes your straw man. Mm-hmm. Let's have a real honest discussion, you know, to person to person or a group of people to a person. I think that's the only way that we're actually going to move past it. So I don't try to make people fit into that white guilt space, mm-hmm. but I will have an honest conversation. Yeah. I will talk about white supremacy and the systems around that you know and i will call people out for their behaviors yeah. but i don't want to make the conversation reductive in any yeah way. you know no absolutely you know just like white men this white women that's like oh hold on just a second let's let's not try to fix a problem that we have by categorizing people in such broad ways by categorizing people in such broad mm. ways yeah i can i can definitely hear you um well, with that said, uh, there were so many more aspects to a lot of the shit that, that happened this last year. We didn't really touch on the election or the fucking insurrection or any of that shit. Um, oh, that's, that's a few more hours of content, I think. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I do remember last year, the one thing that we really tried to do near the end of it was to sort of see if there was because this was a very scary time um putting myself back a year ago uh in the discussion we were having where there was so much uncertainty where there was so much fear where there was so much um just a lot of suffering going on um and i remember something to the effect of the question of like do you see any reason for hope or what what do you feel you know um what do you think we can hope for, et cetera? Um, and so I think my final questions for you uh, have to do with that. So a lot has been talked about the concept of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh-huh. um, which a lot of, uh, you know, are we as a, a, a species have experienced that this last year. Um, there all, there's also discussion on um, what is called post-traumatic growth. Right. So I guess for the, my final questions for you would be in the spirit of post-traumatic growth, what lessons have you learned that you would treasure from this year? And um, what do you hope for this next year? Um, the lessons I've learned is that we're always changing. I've seen tremendous amounts of change over the last decade or so. Um, I think Every day that we have breath in our body is, is, is an opportunity to change and to have a discussion. And if we really kind of honestly turn ourselves towards solutions instead of being deeply rooted in a position, I think we can actually kind of find our way there. Mm. I, I, hold, I hold that belief in human beings. Mm. Uh, I, I also think it's necessary in that mindset to understand you're not going to have these massive tidal waves of change of deep persistent change mm. start with start with the people that you have access to mm. you know and, and and have those conversations 
difficult conversations or not. You know, you, you amplify yourself when you, when you talk to people and you can kind of come to understanding and agreement, you know, that that's ongoing. And I think that we, we grow as human beings from, from those one-on-one or one to like multiple connections that we have locally and grow that out, you know, because everybody brings a little bit, something different in the way that they communicate in the way and, and the people that can reach to that, you know, yeah. Uh, it is that is that it's that concept of each one teach one. So it's not just each one teach one, but you know, each person try to work with the few people that you have, and, and but but keep your eye on growth from there. Mm. Um, I think that we that we as human beings sometimes just want to have like large proportional tidal wave type change to wash over us and wake up one day and everything is going to be great. And that's just not the way that we work in our hearts and our psyches. We've learned a lot about that over the last few years. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's really going to be the place in which our growth is rooted. Uh, I think that there are people in the last year who have taken some really deep, deep lessons from the stuff that we've actually seen around Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So I, I won't dismiss those, those events as having fallen completely on blind eyes or deaf ears. Yeah. Uh, I think it has opened a discussion in the way, in a way that we can seize upon it and move things forward, but we have to keep the conversation going and evolving. We can't get into this place where we're, where we're comfortably repeating, mm. like, you know, convincing arguments or convincing catchphrases. You know, we have to really start digging into like the dynamics of all, all, all of this stuff and making concrete change. I think there are people that are interest, interested in making that concrete change. I think the fact that, you know, you have these different companies and different estates being awake, you know, to the ways that their properties may have been, may be damaging, you know, and may not be relevant anymore if they were ever, ever relevant, going back to the discussion around Dr. Seuss and even some of the stuff with, with Pepe Le Pew and all kinds of stuff like that. I think, you know, the fact that people are kind of taking this upon themselves to have this discussion, it's, it's heartening, uh, you know. Yeah. That like, yeah, it's just like take responsibility for your stuff and do something about it, you know, and, and starting to look at these things in a way that's just kind of like, who am I or who are we in this world? And are we doing things to damage it? Uh, I think that, you know, that we've seen some higher profile examples of people looking at that, that that's heartening. Um, I've seen a lot of that stuff even happening in the company that I work for, where they've taken it very seriously to start talking about like, you know, what kind of environments do we create for the people that work for us? We want to be part of the solution and not the problem. Mm, that's really wonderful. You know, I think that, yeah, I think there are a lot of people out there that have that capacity. There, there are so many more people though. I think that go the other way or like at the, in the best case are apathetic. Uh, but the thing is, is don't become cynical because those people exist or because those people exist in large numbers. Yeah. Work with, work with the people that you have and move forward from there. That's, that's where my optimism lies. I dig it. Um, so for you yourself, uh, how can the folks at home follow what you're doing? Uh, always on Facebook, uh, Disciples of Funk. 
or uh, Funkadetic, you know, the Funkadetic Project, uh, F-U-N-K-I-N-E-T-I-C. So you can search for that and find me. Uh, You can always shoot me an email at info at Funkadetic.com. There is a, there is a, uh, there's a Funkadetic Instagram uh, presence. And so uh, social media is probably the best Perfect. perfect. And uh, any closing thoughts you want to leave the people at home? Uh, keep heart. We're going to get through this. I think if we really look to each other and, and, and look at how we can strengthen each other, uh, all be givers to one another, uh, we can make it through this. My, one of my favorite parables uh, is the parable of the long spoons, uh, where, this, where the mystic, the, the rabbi who actually, who actually wrote the parable, uh, talked about being sent to hell where people were sitting around in a circle and they had these spoons with tremendously long handles where they could not feed themselves. You know, uh, they kept basically trying to feed themselves, but the handles were too long and they would not feed their neighbors and their partners because like, I would rather, you know, see my own self go into decline. You know, I would rather see my own self suffer than helping that other person. Mm. You know, and then this person was also taken bodily to heaven to see an example and realize when they got to heaven that it was the same place, <laughs> except people were engaged in actually feeding their neighbors. Uh-huh. I could not feed myself, but I reached across and fed my neighbor, and my neighbor reached across and fed me. Uh-huh. You know, there's there's something to be said about what we can accomplish when we think about the well-being of each other. Um, I think that I think that 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 concept, that idea. I tell this a lot to people. I think that's deeply embedded in the culture of dance in which I participate. That's it's it has a it's, it has a cultural history of people really feeding each other, um, and I, I like to think that you know I contribute to that, and I like connecting to people who do the same. I would have to agree, and that's uh, a beautiful end to a recap of a truly insane year (laughs) so we'll end this episode in the same manner that we end uh, all of our episodes which is the final toast Um, for anyone who still has a drink left in their glass raise it to the sky to the end of the world cheers to the end of the world cheers all right um so my guest for this very special anniversary episode has been the uh, wonderful, amazing DeAndre Carroll of the Funkinetic Project, um, a veteran dancer of, and educator in uh, the Denver uh, dance community. And I am your humble host, Rob Celtic, uh, and we're signing off. So we will endure, we will grow, and we will overcome. God bless. This episode of Drinking and Dance at the End of the World was written and produced by me, Rob Celtic. Music for this episode was provided by the one and only Feathers. That's F-T-H-R-S. You can find his new album floating on Spotify and Bandcamp under Feathers. 
If you like what you heard and you want to support the show, visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash drinking and dance and donate for early episode releases, bonus episodes, personal shoutouts, and more. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to like, favorite, and follow on Spotify and Anchor. We'll see you next time. Thank you.